Romans chapter 8, the title of the message is How the Love of God Makes Us Super Conquerors. And it's actually, literally, we could translate, look at verse 37, Romans 8, verse 37, yet in all of these things we are more than conquerors. That could be translated, actually, we are super conquerors, and it's because of the love of God. So we're going to unpack this. I mentioned the great church father, John Chrysostom, in fourth century, great preacher, great orator, and uh, he was threatened by the emperor of Rome to renounce Jesus Christ, otherwise the emperor would actually banish him, isolate him. I don't know where the emperor would put him. Of course, we know that John was banished and he was exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith in Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the apostle John, but getting back to John Chrysostom, so the emperor threatened, you gotta renounce Jesus. In other words, I want you to deny Jesus Christ, like right now, deny him. Like he's not the son of God, God the son, he's not the Messiah, he's not the king, and so, and otherwise, we're going to banish you. And John responded by saying, you can't banish me. I mean, my, my father owns the entire world. And the emperor said, okay, then uh, we'll not only banish you, we will take away your treasures. My treasures, my treasures are in heaven. I live for an audience of one, essentially. Okay, then we will take away all of your friends. Listen, Jesus said he'll neither Leave me nor forsake me. He'll always be with me. I have a friend in Jesus Christ. The emperor said, then we will slay you. He said, it's impossible to, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And then John said, I renounce you. I renounce you. I, actually, excuse me. I'm sorry. I defy you, actually. I defy you as the emperor and, and these crazy threats to me. And the question becomes like, how does a man have such confidence when actually real bullets are flying. I mean, banishment is real, threatening like, you know, your property is real, no friends like with you is real. And it gets to actually verse 37 in its context. I mean, I mean, John actually understood this and lived this. This transformed him. This idea that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us, the context here is go back up to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, which is essentially, of course, threat of death, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Can I hear a big amen to that? Okay, ultimately, it's like, hey, what does that mean? We're going to unpack it. But he says, I'm persuaded neither death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things that come, height, depth, any other created things, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Like, whoa. First of all, let me just say, this idea we're more than conquerors or super conquerors because of the love of God. The love of God is not abstract. It's not merely an idea. The love of God is substantive. It speaks to his promises and his presence in our life. The guarantee of who we are in Jesus Christ being lived out. But this idea, and this is very important, is, look, 
We're super conquerors. Super conquerors over what? He's not saying we are super escapists. So in other words, when death comes knocking, somehow believers just never go through the process of death and we escape. Or even famine comes our way. That's a possibility. That a believer then would just escape. We are, we are more than super escapists. That's not what he's saying. Or listen, or the threat of death. I mean, there may be martyrs in our midst who will face that reality. Aren't you glad you came to church to hear that? But that's just the reality. I mean, no, listen, he's just, he's just saying the context, like tribulation, Jesus said, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Distress, the idea that the circumstances in your life are closing in. That's kind of the idea of a trial, and you feel like, oh, man. Have you ever felt like the walls are closing in? Sometimes it gets really dark. Distress. He's not saying, hey, we're super escapists. So in other words, when a trial comes knocking, it's like all of a sudden we escape. I don't know why I have this. I have dreams sometimes. I can't remember any specifics right now about these dreams, but I do remember this. Like if I'm in a situation where I, I don't like where I'm at, I, I, I don't know why, this is crazy, but I'll just jump. I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump. And I just jump, and I, now I find myself flying. And I just like, I'm out of here, man. I mean, just whatever that was, whatever it is, I don't even remember any of these dreams. I mean, I don't know what it was. But it's like, I'm going to escape. I'm out. I just don't like it. So I jump, and I find myself like in the air, getting out of the circumstances. But look, the, the idea of being a conqueror means that we will face death. Of course, in Christ, like we never die. Our first, our last breath, I should say, on planet Earth is our first in heaven. Can I hear a big amen to that? Doesn't mean that you're not going to go through the process. Jesus said, though you die, you shall live, right? The elephant in the room is we don't, escape challenges. We don't. We're going to face them. The reality is, though, in Christ, we triumph. We triumph despite them. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So the question is, well, how does the love of God actually make us super conquer? So let's just get the idea of the love of God being merely abstract in our heads Let's like, let's, let's like put our arms around it. What does it mean in substance? And the outline is, hey, look, uh, love won. Jesus won. Jesus is winning. Love is winning right now in your life, the love of God. And love will win. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, Romans 8 is kind of the summation, this conclusion of the first eight chapters of this great book. So the big question, how does the love of God make us more than overcomers, you know, super conquerors. That's what we're going after. But let's get a little running start. Because let's just, first of all, just talk a little bit about love. How many of you remember that song the Beatles sang, All You Need Is Love? I'm just curious if you raise your hand. Yeah. And then they broke up, right? I mean, it's like, still kind of bummed over that. It's like, what is love? Well, some say love is merely chemical reactions in your brain. This is gaining popularity today. It's 
from a naturalistic worldview. We're a byproduct, they say, of mindless nature. So there, really, there, there is no you. There's no real you. There's no real soul, right? There's no real soul. We're just byproducts of mind. There's no spiritual aspect to your life. You are merely, at best, educated beefsteak. And therefore, they would say, you love your spouse because of biological forces. It's like love is merely chemical reactions in your, in your body, or you love your children because of biological forces. There's no soulish, immaterial realities going on. There's no real, like, your daughter or your son or your spouse. They're, they're just biological machines. And so your attractiveness, you're attracted to them because of chemicals in your body. There's no real you. There really is no real love. And then there's others who would say, well, you know, love is, is, is anything that two consensual adults make it to be. And then, of course, there's the challenge that in the English language, we only have one word for love, right? And that is, we, and we use it really liberally. So it's like, hey, man, I love the tacos, and uh, I love grandma, and I, and I love Shushu the dog, or whatever the case is, you know. So I'm just using, yeah, Shushu was actually a camel in Israel. I just threw that. Sorry, it's true. It's right. I was thinking of a name. So um, actually, so it's like I just use one term, and I'm talking about love for grandma, love for tacos. It's like, but in the Greek, actually, there's four terms for love, right? So it breaks it down. This is great. There's love between family members. That's the term storge in Greek. Like my precious mother, who's 88 years of age, and I, I, I wish you could meet her. I love her so much. Um, beautiful, godly person, inside and out. But she, she said to Stephanie the other day, my precious wife, she said to her, you are my baby girl, she said. And I just thought, whoa, whoa. And she said it again. She was looking, you are my baby girl. And that, I, I just thought, wow, I could die and go to heaven right now. That, that's powerful. I mean, of course, they, they have always had a great relationship. But that love in family is so strong, right? And did I tell you that I have a granddaughter? Did I tell you that, right? If you're here for the first time, it's an inside joke, right? And, and that... And so my granddaughter, who's three, who's like, she was behind me. I'm like having my coffee in the morning, visiting my son in Florida. And I just hear, Papa, your sweetheart's behind you. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. That hook went really deep. I'm like, what, what would you like today, right? Here, I'll give you my credit card. I mean, it's like, that was deep. So there's love on the family level, powerful there is love between friends. That's the word phileo. There is love demonstrated physically. This is the Greek word eros. It's love on the physical plane. Of course, in marriage, that can be an intoxicating love. Proverbs 15 or 519, I should say, reads, a loving doe, a graceful deer. Speaking of the wife, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. So there's family love. There is uh, friendship love. There's love physically in the marriage relationship. Then there is God's love. And that's the word agape. 
The Bible tells us that God is love. Scriptures say we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Listen to this. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So how do we wrap our mind around that? That God is love. Well, God is triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is sufficient within himself. Theologian Cornelius Plantiga penned, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others as the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, serving each other, working with each other, overflows with regard for others. So we see this in salvation. It's like, well, the Father thought the plan of salvation. Jesus came and bought what was necessary for redemption that we'd have right relationship with him, and the Holy Spirit brings it to us, like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working together, overflowing in selfless love for the benefit of others. So in this way, here's point number one. We have it up on the screen, which is love one. Love one. Now, what does that mean? You guys, let's go back to Romans chapter 3, actually. Please look with me. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. How did, how did love win? Well, Jesus said, no man has greater love than this, and he would lay his life down for his friends. He laid his life down for us. Hey, man, when's the last time someone died for you? Jesus gave himself for us on the cross, paid the debt of our sin. Verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Propitiation means like he's like, he's like a sponge. He absorbed sin. He took it upon himself by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness this is a key phrase here, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a mouthful. But it raises the question, watch this, how does a perfectly just God who is morally blameless, how does a perfectly just God make unjust men just? How does he do that? Think of it in this way. The Bible says the sting of death is sin. If sin is like a bee, it's like a bee, it could be said that when Jesus gave himself on the cross, he was stung by every sin and its consequences in human history so that the sting of death and sin would no longer have power over those who trust in Jesus. 
It's kind of like the story of a father and son and they were making their way in a country road and a bee came in the cabin of the truck and it landed on the shoulder of the young man. And this guy happened to be actually allergic to bees and so he's like freaking out. I mean, it's like he gets stung by a bee, they're out in the country road, it could cost him his life. So his father reaches over and he grabs the bee and holds it while retaining control of the car And then after a few moments, he just opens his hand and the bee starts flying in the cab. And the son just, you know, is crying and freaking out and so scared that the bee may bite him or sting him. And the father said, look, son, he just extended his hand. He said, look, son, look in the middle of my hand. That bee can't hurt you because the stinger is in my hand. And in a similar way, it's like our Lord is on the cross. He is being stung, right? The Bible says the sting of Death is sin. And there's not a more powerful narrative than a love rescue. Like, look at chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us much more than having been justified, which means declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's like, well, what is that? Um, Well, first of all, how does a perfectly just God make unjust men just? Well, we answered it. It's like God became a man, paid the debt, of sin himself. He took the sting of death upon himself. But as we expand this further, it's like, oh my goodness, this is like a, what, 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 a, what a love rescue. Like I'll never forget when I was just my first year in college, and this is like 1982, I just remember seeing on the television Flight 90 uh, that slid off a runway at Washington National Airport into the icy Potomac. And I just... I, I, it, was, it was like the, the, like the video was really grainy and stuff. And uh, they were rescuing people. So this is like a broken plane, literally just like in the icy Potomac and things. And people are trying to get out of the plane and things. And I just remember that. Now, what I didn't know is that there was a man by the name of Arlen Williams. Well, he's like in the wreckage. You, know, like you can actually look this up on YouTube. He's in the wreckage. So it's like, like this wires all over the place and he's like in the waters and it's icy and things and people are trying to crawl out of the plane. Now a helicopter's overhead and it's dropping this lifeline. Well, God bless him. Arlen is like giving the line to other people before himself. He just kept giving. He just kept, just kept giving. They're just, uh, it's, it's such a dramatic scene. I don't recommend watching as a soldier. Anyways, it's like, and he just kept giving, he kept giving. And then all of a sudden it's like, where's Arlen? Well, where is he? It's like, well, he lost strength and he just, you know, he lost his life, right? And so today, in commemoration of his incredible love rescue, because he gave his life for the life of others. I mean, he's honored everywhere, even in Japan. Women in Japan have a very special shrine to Arlen Williams. I mean, you have an elementary school named after him. You have a bridge named after him. Of course, 
Arland is not here. We can't thank him for it. We can remember him and we memorialize him. But look, now translating this to our precious Lord, I mean, he gave it all for us. He laid his life down. The difference is plenty in comparison to Arland, of course. But there's nothing more powerful than a love rescue that someone would lay their life down for others. Can I hear an amen to that? The thing is, is our Lord lives. So we can thank him. We can worship him. He is fully alive. Here's the thing. We are super conquerors because love won. Or you can even say Jesus won. God is love. Okay, we're super conquerors. We've been justified, declared righteous. Your sins have been forgiven. Can I hear another amen to that, right? So in the name of being confident that we're super conquerors, here's point number two, that love is actually winning right now in your life. It's true. Go back with me to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. Now, how, how do we wrap our mind around this? Well, one way we do is look in verse 26 of Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Pause right there. Hey, listen. Do you know the Lord is so present in our life? He indwells us. He knows every dynamic, every, every nuance of pain that you're, that you're carrying and burden. And when we don't know how to articulate it, and we've all been there, we've just been overwhelmed, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I don't even know how to pray. Hey, how many of you have ever been there? Could you raise your Let me say it right. We're like, what do I even pray? Or how do I put words to this? You know, we have the Holy Spirit actually who is interceding for us, who is praying for us. So it's like, hey, the Father's behind it all since his Son. The Holy Spirit indwells us, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. He's so comprehensive, he's even praying for us. So let me just say, if you're like in a place where you don't even know how to articulate your burden, the Holy Spirit knows how to articulate your burden. He knows, and he is praying for you. And furthermore, please look at verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he predestined, preplanned in Christ to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and moreover, whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. In other words, we have right now, and I like this to turn to Acts chapter 7, actually. And let's illustrate this. We have right now our Lord, who is at the right hand of the Father, who is actually interceding for us. Okay? So let me just ask you a question. What's bugging you? What, what, seriously, like, what's, what's, what's your burden? I, I mean, like, it's like, it's like human. Like, it's normal, right, to have, carry burdens. I mean, we are to cast our burdens 
upon the Lord, but what's, what's bugging you? I just want to encourage you in something that we have, hey, the greatest friend there could ever be in high places who is actually behind the scenes working it out. He's working all things for the good, the highest good in your life, which is to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, in Acts chapter 7, the reason I'm having us turn there is because we're talking about like, hey, love one. But love, excuse me, I'll put this right over here. But love is also winning. The Lord is winning in our lives. Love is winning. Love, he's active in our life. Okay? I, I want us to turn here to Acts chapter 7 because this is a snapshot in Stephen's life, a young follower of Jesus, Jewish follower of Jesus. He's one of the first deacons. And he's courageously spoken to the leaders in Israel about his faith in the Lord Jesus. He's given this history of Israel and how Israel has this uh, propensity to harden their hearts and not be in the moment and embrace what God is doing. That's not all of Israel, but he's challenging the leadership. And when he does, it tells us, well, actually, please, look at, look at, let's look at verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one and whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now that's some chutzpah, right? I mean, that, 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 that's courage. Look, fear is a reaction. Courage is a decision. And this is a man who's deciding, like, speak the truth. He's hoping to wake the leadership in Israel to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So, so what happens? It says, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, what's the next word, you guys? And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. This is a picture of Jesus in a place of intercession. This is a place of rule. He's coming back. The Bible speaks of him at the right hand in a variety of ways. One is he's fully aware of what's going on in our life. And I believe the fact that he's standing here not only speaks he's going to welcome the first martyr in Jerusalem, but he's fully engaged. He's like, you know, sometimes you just got to stand up. You know, I don't know you're watching a football game or sports and it's like it's so intense. You find yourself standing. You're in the moment. You're fully attentive, right? So like the Lord is standing, speaking of the fact that to Stephen... He is present. He knows what's going on. And it tells us, and said, look, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen and as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, 
he fell asleep. Now watch this. Go into chapter 8, verse 1. It says, now Saul, Saul. Now who, who actually is Saul? We, we know him by, can someone tell me? Paul. Ah, hey, listen. I mean, we're going to get to this in just a little bit. Do you know love never fails? Okay, now the love of God never fails, never fails in being good, never fails in being redemptive. But look, we're going to get to this toward the end. But when we love God and when we love other people, and Stephen is clearly doing this, love is an act that actually is eternal. It's like it's always good. Its properties are always redemptive. And, and once it comes into play, I know this like stretches your brain, but this is reality. This is what the Bible teaches. We're going to get to it in a second. Once love is received and once love is given, it actually lasts forever. Not everything lasts forever, but the love of God does. And it's always good. And it's always influential. And we see this actually in context. We're just, we're just talking about how love is winning. It's like you say, well, here, like Stephen's life is taken. Yeah, but it's like the seed of the martyrdom of Stephen is actually being planted in this young man named Saul. Who, who is consenting over his death. I mean, I don't know. Saul may be like 33 years of age here. He's part of the Sanhedrin, actually the chief leadership in Israel. And it says at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering house to house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered right from this opposition, the Lord is still at work, went everywhere preaching the, what's the next word, you guys? Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, preached Christ to them, and multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Hey, what does this speak to? It speaks to a lot of things, but one is love is winning. I mean, look, he gives his life, planting seeds to Saul, who later, jump to chapter 9 of Acts, please. Saul is headed up to Damascus, right? And what ends up happening? The Lord runs him down. No one is out of the reach of Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 4, he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a, like a stick that you are like poke an animal to get them to move. And Saul has been resisting God up to this point. That's what the implication is. Hey, Saul. You know, I'm going to use a little liberty here. Hey, did you just see Stephen give his life? I mean, face shone like an angel, absolutely confidence, didn't fear death and stuff. That's been bugging you, hasn't it? So maybe you ought to rethink of Jesus Christ. I mean, what are you doing? You're crazy. You're like you're persecuting believers and stuff. The Lord ran him down, and he ends up, like, obviously becoming the greatest missionary that has ever been, penned two-thirds of the New Testament. What am I trying to get to? I'm just trying to underscore. Love is winning. Love won. Jesus won. Jesus is winning. And 
How do we know we can be confident that we are super conquerors? Here's point number three. We have it on the screen. Because love will win. Love will win. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, you guys. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus is in Jerusalem. And... He cries over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, look at verse 37 of chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Man, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, For I say to you, you shall not see me till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a lot being said there. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And Jesus makes a kind of feminine reference to a hen gathering her chicks. It's a picture of protection and nurturing. Jesus, how much I just wanted to protect you and nurture you. I'm the true vine of Israel. If you abide in me, you'll, you'll bear fruit. But you are not willing The leadership refused Jesus Christ, rejected him, worked to have him crucified. You were not willing. That's the problem. And basically, you're not going to see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And one day, Israel will say this very thing. In the darkest hour of Israel's history, prior to the second coming, there is this major conversion among our Jewish friends in Israel. Can I hear a big amen to that? And they will look upon him whom they pierced. All Israel will be saved. But look, for him to say, your house is left to you desolate, you're talking about the glory of God now departing from the temple. But Jesus does not give up on Jerusalem. He doesn't give up on Israel. Even though he says, hey, you're not going to see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. No, it's like on the cross, he cries, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he positions the disciples in Jerusalem. So it's like, hey, the glory is departed from the temple, but I haven't given up on you. It's like, you know, it's like uh, I'm going to win on the cross and and I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to pursue the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus will return to Jerusalem and he's going to judge the godless nations led by the lawless one who's the Antichrist. And the Bible says all creation... This is Romans 8, right? All creation groans from this deep dislocation. It's like something is wrong. Something's not right. Yeah, there's this deep dislocation inherent in man. We live in a broken world. We need Jesus Christ. And the Bible says all of creation is actually groaning for the completed work of Christ in his church. The Bible says... I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's a big idea. It's like, hey, the Lord won. He is winning. He will win. He's not finished with us. We've been justified. We are glorified. That is going to be 
known on planet earth with new bodies ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. Can I hear another amen to that? It's like I love this scene just after the climax of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Sam Wise Gamgee. I should have my wife tell this story. She's really into this. Okay, discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, as he thought, but alive. And he cried, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Well, the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Because Jesus said, behold, I will make all things new. So in the meantime, just watch this. I don't know how we're super conquerors. In the meantime, God is love. The fruit of the Spirit, genuine relationship with Almighty God, the outcrop of that is love, selflessness, aims to work towards the highest good in others' lives to protect and nurture. Jesus said, this is how you'll know my disciples, by the love they have for one another. In 1 Corinthians 13.8, I mentioned this earlier, the Bible says love never fails. It's the Greek word pipte. It means to fail, to eclipse, to be destroyed, ruined, or come to an end. Love never comes to an end. James uses the word in James 1.11 to identify the transitory nature of a flower. If you pick a flower, it begins to break down. It's, 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 it's no longer living. It's, it's temporary. It breaks down. It's also been used to identify nautical dynamics of a boat never losing its course. So when the Bible says love never fails... Love is never eclipsed. Love never disintegrates. It never breaks down. Watch this. This is big. I love it. When you receive God's love, it never fails. When you give God's love, when you demonstrate love, it never actually breaks down. Okay, so look at it this way. Like life is like this big suitcase. And we're carrying all of these experiences with us and memories and and, and, you know, realities, if, if you will, from the past, you know, presently and into the future. And, of course, there are some things we need to just throw out of the suitcase. I mean, I, you know, we, we need to get rid of those. We, we need to forget those things which are behind and move on. But just think of life like this big, big suitcase that has good, bad, and ugly in it. There's pain. There's guilt, there's disappointment, there's also wonderful experiences and spiritual gifts. Well, as time goes on, some of what's in that suitcase is removed, right? And we need to remove it. We need to dump it. Others, like, endure. You're just like, you're going to, in the suitcase, there's some things that you're going to carry into the future. Pain is not forever. Shame, guilt, of course, not forever. Jesus addressed it. But love is forever. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. So that means, listen, the greatest investment in life, because love never fails, 
is actually to love. Love will win. Jesus won, is winning, and will win. Someone wrote that Jesus Christ came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became son of man that we might become sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land of Israel in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential in infancy. He startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked on the billows, hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine, made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world cannot hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. And we sung some good songs this morning, by the way, about him. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. Can I hear an amen to that? All right. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy. The rock of geology, the lion and lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. That's Jesus Christ. And we're in Christ. Let's pray, Lord. We thank you that you won. We believe it. And I just want to thank you. You're winning. I mean, in other words, totally in, intimately involved in our life. Love is active, interceding, working it out. I mean, we believe it, believe it, believe it. And we want to live it, live it, live it. And we thank you. You will win. We thank you. We're glorified. I mean, just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're in awe of you. We thank you, Lord. We, and and to, to, you have identified us as your poema, your masterpiece. It's like, oh my goodness. Thank you. Any man be in Christ, he's a brand new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Incredible. So Lord, help us be fearless. Help us to be courageous. Live for an audience of one. To make our voice and our life count. And I just pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit who is here, I know, would you fall afresh on us? We need you on a daily basis. Would you baptize us afresh? Because you are the truth. The truth sets us free. And as you have said, thy word is truth. And you have called us to not only embody it, but to bring it to this generation. And let me just say, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, you know, Maybe you're here for the first time. So glad you're with us. Or you've been here a few times. But you're thinking, you know, um, golly, I mean, I, I'm not sure that Jesus is like winning in my life. I don't even know if I have that confidence that I have relationship with him. And, and that's okay. But I just want you to know the Lord doesn't want to leave you 
in that place. I mean, he wants to meet you in a very personal way this morning. Uh, the Lord loves you. He loves you. He loves you enough not to leave you or us the way we are. So I just want to say, look, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, if there's no God, right, we came from nothing, we are nothing, we're headed nowhere. But that's not true. There is a God who created us. And you have a soul. And the real you is the one looking through your eyes. And your soul, which is the real you, it's not... It's not body. It's body's part of us. But the real you that lives forever, either with the Lord or outside of his presence, and yeah, there's a place called hell, which is like, you know, created for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want anyone going there. But he's not going to force himself on anyone in right relationship. He's a perfect gentleman, if you will. He's given us a choice. And, and the Bible says that he set before us life and death and blessings and cursings. And he says, choose life. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except to be through me. Listen, we have no idea who God is unless he's revealed himself. He has in his son. You say, well, what do I, gotta, what do, I do with that? And this is the thing. Before I was a Christian, like I believed in God, and I actually believed in Jesus. I, I just didn't know how to become a Christian. I didn't know. I didn't know that there needed, needed to be a time that I opened the door of my heart to him. As Jesus said, he stands at the door and knocks. And if anyone would hear his voice and open the door, he would come in. That can happen for you, my friend. You say, well, how does it happen? We all need to admit we're sinners. It's true. What does that mean? Well, one way we could look at it is the Bible says sin is crossing the line. It's stepping over, stepping outside of original design. It's like the fish who wanted to be a fisherman, you know, admiring the fisherman, the fish in the, in the lake. And he jumped out of the water on the side of the lake and then, of course, found himself outside of original boundaries that God had prescribed for the fish. And now, of course, he's, you know, he's suffocating. The point is, God has given us his law. There is such a thing as righteousness. And the Bible says we've all, let's just say it this way, we've all jumped out of the water thinking that, hey, we, you know, we'll find life uh, outside of God's original boundaries. The Bible says, hey, that leads to death. The wages of sin is death and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, think of the Ten Commandments. We've had someone or something before God. We've broken, we've all committed idolatry, a God replacement in our life. Um, the Bible says, honor mom and dad and not to devalue human life and not to cheat and not to lie. I mean, those are just a few of God's righteous boundaries, but choices matter. And the Bible says sin is against God and we need forgiveness. And the core problem of man is separation from God. It's, and that's, we look at the world and it's like, hey, the world could be a different place if it followed Jesus Christ. Our state would be different if we followed Jesus Christ. So I just want you to know, look, it's essential to say, okay, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And a lot of believers here, of course, every believer has admitted that. That's so important. And number two, what's critical is you recognize what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you. And we've been talking about that love rescue. He bore your sin. 
And number, number three, he resurrected from the dead. He's alive. Listen, I wouldn't be a Christian unless I'm convinced Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's transformed my life. He can do the same for you. We need to repent of our sin, turn from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. And the Bible says we need to receive him. He stands at the door and he's knocking. The Bible says we do that. We receive him, that is, by calling upon the Lord. Those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. And listen, do it now, because the Bible says today is the say of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. So I just want to, while our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, how many of you would say, Greg, you know, pray for me? Because I would like to open the door of my heart to receive Christ. I would like to settle my eternity. I want to leave here knowing my sins are forgiven, and if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. I want that settled. If that's you, raise up your hand right now, and I'm going to lead you. In. Just slip up your hand while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Private moment. I want to, God bless you. If you want to receive Christ, you just slip up your hand, and by raising up your hand, you'd be saying, yes, that's me. I want, I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to embarrass you, I'm not going to ask you to you know, come forward or anything. I'm just going to lead you in a word of prayer right where you're seated. So if you would like to receive Christ, raise up your hand if you haven't already, and I will lead you in a word of prayer. And I just want to ask church family, be praying for those to your right and to your left and your front and the back. This is such a holy moment. I want to just make sure the invitation's been clear. So if you haven't yet, raise your hand. If you would like to, you raise up your hand. Raise it up high so I can see it. I would appreciate it. I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. Yeah. Hey, those of you that raised your hand, pray with me right where you're seated. And this is a prayer to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. How beautiful this is. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I call upon you now to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for dying for me, paying the debt of my sin resurrecting from the dead. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a great Savior. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. Fill me with the life of God and teach me to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for coming into my life, making me your child, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.